The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 12th, 2024. On this week's show, we'll talk about how the Chiefs beat the 49ers in Super Bowl 58. It was a really good game, or at least a very exciting one, so we might go on for a bit. We're also going to bring on CNBC's Alex Sherman to explain the mega streaming service that may or may not change how we watch sports forever. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of the book, The Queen. And in retrospect, maybe it wasn't such a great idea to agree to dye my hair red and yellow if Patrick Mahomes won. Also in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. And he was so pumped up about Jake Moody's Super Bowl record-setting 55-yard field goal that he blacked out and missed Harrison Butker's record-setting 57-yard field goal. You know, I've long contemplated getting a San Francisco 49ers helmet logo tattoo because, you know, the initials match up. A bit of a non sequitur. Forgive me if I've made this joke before, but um, have you ever also considered wearing a Rob Lowe style hat and going to a game and having the hat just say kickers? Oh, I would love a hat like that. <laughs> if someone wants to send me one, I would wear it all the time. And with us, as always, from Palo Alto. Three-time slow burn host, Joel Anderson, which is really the podcasting equivalent of winning three Super Bowl MVPs. Congratulations. Yeah, me and Pat Mahomes, we've done it three times. Uh, that's what the Texas boys do, you know? Similar hairstyle, you know. I guess so. I didn't even think about that. My, I think my dad has a few things in common with Pat Mahomes Sr. I, although, to my knowledge, he's never gotten picked up uh, the week before I had a big event or anything like that. <laughs> or pitched in Major League Baseball. That too. That too. <laughs> All right. We want to thank our Slate Plus members for making this show possible. And this week, as we do every week, we have a bonus segment for you. We're going to keep up our Super Bowl talk. And in the bonus segment, we are going to focus on the broadcast, the CBS production, and everyone's favorite, well, not everyone, some people's least favorite color announcer, Tony Romo. If you want to hear us talk about that stuff and you want to hear bonus segments on other Slate shows, you also get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts and you can support us. Uh, you need to be a Slate Plus member. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. On Sunday in Las Vegas, the Kansas City Chiefs were down by three in overtime, but they did have Patrick Mahomes, a quarterback. Here's Kevin Harlan on the call for Westwood One Radio. In the shotgun, Mahomes, four-man front, receiver in motion, low snap. He runs and he throws, caught, touchdown, it's caught. Harlan caught the ball, the Chiefs have won, the Chiefs have won. A little bit of a Havlicek stole the ball cadence there. To make sure we cover the full spectrum of the human experience, here are Greg Papa and Tim Ryan on the 49ers radio call. Another heartbreaking loss for Kyle Shanahan. Dang it! <laughs> Not really the Havlicek stole the ball cadence, but again, full spectrum of human existence. Uh, Joel, I want to know what you were thinking and feeling in the moment the Chiefs won their third Super Bowl in five years. But first, uh, let's hear from Kansas City's Mecole Hardman, who caught the winning pass. 
Hey, I ain't gonna lie, man. Uh, I caught that pass and I blacked out. <laughs> hey, oh, man. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on until I seen Pat running to me. I'm like, oh, we just won. Okay, yeah, let's, let's celebrate, you know? <laughs> so I'm trying not to be a prisoner of the moment because last night I called this maybe the best game that I've ever seen with competitive stakes like this. And I've got so many thoughts and I want to try to keep them short, but here's two of them. One, I think anybody that has ever played a team sport at the high school level or beyond can relate to what I'm about to say. You go into weight rooms, you go to tracks, pools, trails, whatever, and there's nothing out there but you and your will. And then your coach comes. And even if they're just like the dumbest guy that you've ever met in your life, they're saying these things to you. You know, pain is nothing but weakness leaving the body. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. You know, uh, I don't care how rocky the sea is, just row the damn boat in. You know, that kind of stuff, right? And it all seems like cliche. It all seems kind of like ridiculous, right? But then I looked at that game and I just saw how gassed those dudes were. And like, they are leaving everything on the field, man. Like people are like hands on their knees. You can just, you can see the wave of fatigue all over the field. Everybody is at their, you know, down to like their last gasp. And you understand why all these guys are telling you to work work that hard. And like what it is like when you push your body to the edge, because you need it in a moment like that. And so I just thought that game was like the height of elite competitiveness, that everybody gave everything. I don't think anybody could ask for anything more than what we got in that game last night, right? Like, just, I, I was floored at the effort that both of those teams gave. And it just reminded me, you know, my first two-a-day workout at TCU, I spent all summer working out in high school, and I thought I was in shape, and then my first day at two days, I almost passed out at the end of the workout. And I was just like, I've never felt anything like this before. And then like, I was like, oh, sometimes coaches can get, can go a, a little, you know, go beyond with that sort of stuff. But you understand where they're trying to get you to for moments like that. And then the other thing I thought about, this is about Pat Mahomes in a way. I think about the success the 49ers have had over the years, like especially on defense, like Nick Bosa, Chase Young, Fred Warner, they've all have garnered all these accolades. They've had all these accomplishments. They've had so much success in the NFL. They've played about as good defense as you could possibly play in the NFL in last night against Mahomes. They pushed each other to the limit. But then I thought of something to just kind of shift to another sport for a second. It reminds me of something Charles Barkley said about the 93 finals when the Suns played the Bulls. And he's just like, I think I'm the MVP. I'm the best player in the league, you know? And he goes out there the first two games and like MJ drops like 40, like in the first couple games. And he goes home and he's just like, oh, that guy is actually the best player in the world. I don't know if the 49ers felt that way, but watching it, I was like, oh, we are watching a great, an all-time generational great at work. And as good as the 49ers were, as accomplished as they were, as good as they had even been all night, it really didn't matter because they had Tiger, they had Jordan, they had Sugar Ray Leonard versus Hearns last night. The Chiefs did. Like, you can hold... Pat Mahomes for about as long as you can, but at some point he's going to get his. And I think that that's what happened last night, Stefan. Yeah. And I think we felt it all when San Francisco didn't score on the first drive of overtime. That felt like just a backbreaking moment. Not a failure exactly. Football is complicated. Sports are complicated. I mean, I think this entire game, it would be hard to rationally say, 
someone was bad. There were mistakes because mistakes are always made in sports games, but nobody was bad here. The first half was kind of lackluster. Neither offense had much to offer. The second half was marvelous, and the overtime was marvelous. I mean, these were great athletes playing at their peak. And honestly, Joel, I think what you said is right. I mean, watching that overtime really was sort of they shoot horses, don't they? You just felt like someone's not going to make it here because they're so tired. It was the seventh longest game in NFL history. It was the first overtime game in a Super Bowl under the NFL's new rules that allow both teams to get the ball to correct that clearly flawed rule that allowed the team that scored first to win the game which was a correction to what happened a couple of years ago when Kansas City beat Buffalo in the playoffs in overtime. This was just really fun to watch. I mean, yeah, there were mistakes, obviously, but even the mistakes were just sort of routine football mistakes. This shit happens. Jake Moody missing that extra point was critical. It was a bad kick. Came off of like an ankle bone instead of his instep. There was that weird uh, punt that gave Kansas City great field position and led to a touchdown. Fluke, ball hits a defender as he's running down the field and Kansas City recovers on the punt. Even the mistakes in this game were sort of like interesting football mistakes and not terrible human fuck-ups. This was just a great game, Josh. And and it confirms a lot of our pre-existing feelings, particularly about Pat Mahomes, but also about... You know, the way that the best players of all time find ways to rise to the occasion and get it done when they have to. Yeah, I mean, I thought Brock Purdy playing an absolutely horrible game was in play here. I think a lot of Mm -hmm. people did. And perhaps a lot of people were rooting for that. But he did not have a terrible game. And Bill Barnwell pointed out that when he got rid of the ball quickly, throws within three seconds or less, 17 of 22 for 189 yards when he was pressured, held the ball, anything after three seconds. He was six of 16 for 66 yards. And so, I, <laughs> and, and every quarterback's numbers are going to decline when they are pressured. Well, and when Mahomes yeah. was blitzed towards the end of the game, when the 49ers pass rush slowed down, he was five for five. Um, mm-hmm. Not every quarterback uh, is... Except for Pat Mahomes is what I was going to add. <laughs> except for Pat Mahomes. So I, I think what we saw here is that you know, the 49ers and Purdy is dinged a little bit because he has so many great players around him. He has such a great scheme around him. And I think the 49ers with their great skill position players with Kyle Shanahan calling the plays, they have been able to elevate Purdy. Purdy can elevate himself at at certain times. He made a lot of great throws in that game. But I thought the play of the game was the third and five Two minutes to go, regulation, the Chiefs and Steve Spagnuolo send six people, like not quite an all-out blitz, but pretty close to it, and Purdy just like dumps it right into the to the blitz. Like whether that was a blocking scheme thing, whether he should have changed the protection, whether George Kittle should have slid over and blocked the free rusher, whatever it was, the the scheming, the skill position players, Purdy himself. In that one moment, and I'm going to sound like Tony Romo here, that could have been for the Super Bowl. Like if if they had completed that one third and five pass, they could have run down the clock and we could have had a game-winning field goal. It wouldn't have been as much of a classic ending. So thank you to 
you know, the chiefs and to put Purdy for the incompletion there. But you just have a feeling, Joel, that whether it's Mahomes, Andy Reid, there were similar plays, the fourth and one in overtime with the unexpected zone read where Mahomes kept the ball. There were these moments where the Chiefs could have lost the game and they didn't because of the quarterback, because of the play caller. And it just felt like the 49ers may have had the better roster, but they it just didn't feel like they quite had enough in this game to overcome everything that you need to overcome to beat the Chiefs. Yeah, you know how, I mean, I think people have been saying that Mahomes felt inevitable. In a lot of ways, like, I think that's true when you normally are watching him. But actually, last night, I kept saying, okay, it's almost over. Like, the 49ers are are, are about to pull it out. Whether, you know, um, you know, late in the game, when they have a chance to salt it away and you think they're going to run the clock out. Or, I mean, just the 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 sheer weird circumstances of missing an extra point, you know what I'm saying, or getting it blocked. Like, I mean, if just that, like if you just don't get a hand on that, game is over, right? Like, I mean, you know, the the, the 49ers likely win in regulation. So there were so many, like the play where Marquez Valdez-Scantling on the first and 10 catches the ball, you know, six yards. Minus 10 six yards, yards after catch. Yeah, it ends, <laughs> yeah it, ends up, it ends up with a four-yard loss. Like all this shit keeps happening. You're just like, oh, okay. It's fine, you know, I don't know if Mahomes is going to be able to get out of that one. And here we go, right? And so, yeah, I mean, that's a testament to his greatness. But it's also just a testament to how weird and how sometimes unlucky football can be. I read, I saw a, a stat that said that the Chiefs have, in the last two games against the, the 49ers, they fumbled the ball eight times and recovered seven of them, right? And that's just I mean, total is, luck. I mean, that's just luck. That's just not, that you you can't practice that. That's the kind of shit that just happens. And so... I think there was a point in the game in which I thought, okay, the 49ers are the better team here. And it was down the stretch. Like, if you look from the point when San Francisco went ahead, they were trailing 13 to 10, and then they scored a touchdown. And then they, so they went 12 plays and 75 yards, seven plays and 40 yards. And then after overtime, they go 13 plays for 66 yards. And it just looked like they were finally imposing their will. They were being the physical, more talented team that they had been and seemingly had been all year, most of the night. But then, you know, shit happens, and sometimes, you know, you've got Jordan on the other side, on the other sideline, and it doesn't matter. So, to me, last night, Stefan, was less a testament to, like, the greatness of Mahomes, the mistakes that happened, 49ers falling short again, and just a testament to how weird and crazy and wonderful football can just sometimes be, right? When two great teams are out there and sometimes they're both making mistakes and fucking things up, but also like they're making incredible plays mm-hmm. and they're just, they're, they're playing this chess match out there with each other. You can kind of see it unfolding, right? And I just think that like if you were a football fan and you didn't have a rooting interest in it, I don't know how you couldn't have just loved last night because it was just, there was never a point at which anything felt predictable. Right, and even some of the decision-making that I think in previous weeks or in a regular season might come under scrutiny, whether to go forward on, you know, fourth and inches from your own 11, which Andy Reid faced and the numbers say, go for it. Or Kyle Shanahan eschewing a field goal that would have tied the game at 13 
on fourth and three, a short field goal and going for it and converting and scoring a touchdown. I'm sure that you were enraged that. like you were when Dan Campbell did the same thing that he had Different gone situation. For I knew you were going to say that. Different well, situation. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to your very well-prepared uh, explanation since you knew I was going to say it. They were losing. Um, <laughs> uh, but ultimately, Joel, you need to, to also, you know, you said maybe not so much Mahomes, but maybe a lot Mahomes. I mean, in the 2020 Super Bowl, the Chiefs trailed 20 to 10 at the end of the third quarter. In the 2023 Super Bowl, they trailed 27 to 21 after the third quarter. In Sunday's Super Bowl, they trailed 10 to 3 at the half. This was the worst, in air quotes, team that Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes have had in their six years together. The receiving core was pretty bad during the regular season. Most drops in the NFL. This was the team that faced the hardest playoff path ever, ever, according to the analytical tool DVOA. You know, the Bills and the Ravens just as easily could have made the Super Bowl this year and nobody would have blinked. Said great team, great games, Godspeed. And yet at the end, we're talking about Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs. Up next, we'll talk about 49ers coach Kyle Shanahan, whether he should be ashamed of his decision-making. All right, Joel, let's talk about Kyle Shanahan. Not a great Super Bowl resume for this man. He was the Falcons offensive coordinator when they blew the 28-3 lead to the Patriots. Has now lost two uh, Super Bowls to the Chiefs as the 49ers head coach, both with uh, double-digit leads. Um, What do you think of the game he called and how we should think about this guy who has been hailed as a genius, who's seen as somebody that other teams are like trying to get guys off his coaching tree. Like the the league seems to want, you know, a Kyle Shanahan in every pot as it were. But, you know, what does this do to his reputation or what do you think it should do to his reputation? I mean, I don't think it should do anything. I mean, what we're talking about here is Kyle Shanahan coming up short in Super Bowls, not week 13 of the regular season, right? And it's not like he's gotten blown out in any of these games. It's not like his team has shown up and not performed well. They've done all those things at times. When you play against another great team, which you're going to if you make it to the Super Bowl for the most part, these things are going to happen. And do you, like, I think what's also kind of ridiculous about this is you can look right on the other sideline and see sort of the folly of trying to, like, malign a guy for doing this well, getting this far, and coming up short. Andy Reid was Kyle Shanahan. I just saw the stat last night where it said Andy Reid, he won all three of his Super Bowls after he turned 60 years old, right? So it's more than that, Joel. It's that Andy Reid was maligned. He was mocked. His time clock clock management, management, losing big games, not being able to take his team to the podium. Right. And do you know what what changed? So he had Donovan McNabb as as his quarterback. And Donovan McNabb, pro bowler, probably not going to make the Hall of Fame. But, you know, he was a very good quarterback. But what happened? 
he got Pat Mahomes, and that changed everything. And I, I'm not blaming this loss on Brock Purdy. I think Brock Purdy did about as well as you could expect under these circumstances against a defense that, again, I think people consistently underrated all year long. It was the Ravens were, were the best defense in the league, and they were historically great. The Chiefs were just like a tick right behind them. Purdy had some success last night, but I think the thing is, though, is that the decision making that Kyle Shanahan is making, and I don't, you know, want to read too much into that, and he would never say this. Sometimes you're conservative in some spots because, or sometimes you make a call in this spot because, oh, I don't trust my quarterback to, you know, make this play, right? Or I don't trust that he can drive the ball down the field or whatever. And again, sometimes you don't know what they're looking at. And the, the other thing that Kyle Shanahan is getting criticized for is, well, they didn't run the ball enough. You know, they need a Christian McCaffrey. Well, shit. I mean, this is another good defense out there. We don't know what the looks are. We None of us have the all 22 to know what Kyle Shanahan and Brock Purdy were seeing out there. So, I mean, long story short, I just think that, you know, we can nitpick Kyle Shanahan here and all this other stuff. But like, if you have a coach and the biggest thing that you can say about him is that, oh, he's made a few poor coaching decisions in the Super Bowl, then I just, I mean, what are we talking about here? This guy's not Joe Bugle. You know what I mean? Uh, he's not even Robert Sala. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's, he's clearly an elite coach. Joe Bugle just, catching he, a stray on Hang Up and Listen. Yeah. Um, Shanahan, Stefan had to make a decision that no coach in the history of the National Football League could ever had to make, which is under these new overtime rules, um, there's some really fascinating game theory here. Both teams do have the chance to get the ball. But in that circumstance, do you want to receive the ball first or do you want to play defense first? Yeah. And he chose to take the ball and play offense first. And it's complicated. And I didn't know what the analytics were going into the overtime. And it turns out that eh, they're kind of could go either way. It's a really, really well-crafted system, actually, it turns out. Like it's basically like break even no matter what you do. Yeah, um, but it is a fascinating exercise in decision-making. You take the ball first, you control the beginning of the overtime. If you score a touchdown, it puts pressure on the other team to match you or maybe to match and then go for two and win the game outright. The other advantage of going first is that you get the ball third if the opposing team ties you with a chance to win the game outright. There's no fourth possession if the team score on the first three. That was what Shanahan said after the game. We wanted to get the ball third, which sounds like an incredibly mm -hmm. stupid thing to say. But actually, like the analytics people are like, actually, it kind of makes sense. You do want to get the ball third. You do want to get the ball third, yeah. And also, the, for people that were watching the game, like you saw after the 49ers settled for a field goal, I felt, didn't you all felt, feel like a, a pall was cast over that bench there? Like, oh, shit, here it goes. Mahomes is about to get the ball. So it's totally understandable why he would want the ball third if it came down to that, right? Right, and to maybe just not give Mahomes the ball immediately. And the other mm -hmm. factor that I think was down the list in the conversation was that San Francisco's defense was gassed. Yep. Um, they looked really, really tired. They had been on the field for a long time. You send them out there facing Pat Mahomes to start overtime, and the pressure level goes up. So I think you do want your defense in that situation to be as rested as possible, given the circumstances, when you know at some point they're going to have to go on the field and defend against the Chiefs offense. I mean, I my gut reaction was that it was stupid that it was really stupid and that wow. Joel, I was like, oh, these people like 
have never seen college overtime before. Um, because in college, you always want to get the ball second. But it's a different, it's a slightly different system. And I didn't appreciate yeah. that um, at the time. And the, the college system, you do have the chance to match. But if you match, then both teams get the ball again. There's a difference here. If you match here, then the team that you know, has the ball first, it does convert into su- sudden death. So I was being a little bit quick to criticize and, and a little ignorant about the system. That being said, your point is exactly right, Joel. If you are the 49ers and you are playing against Patrick Mahomes, if you don't score a touchdown on the first possession, mm-hmm. you have to feel like you're going to lose. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the, what the statistics are, but like you're giving Mahomes... It's it's not just that he's Mahomes. You're giving him four downs. Like once you score the mm-hmm. the field goal, like as an offense, if you know you have only three downs, then you have to punt. The game is like so much. It's not necessarily easier is the right word, but it's like way easier to get a first down if you have four downs to do it every time. And so you're really under the gun if you have a quote unquote successful drive and get a field goal. Like you're probably gonna lose. And so that's why I thought it was stupid. I don't know again what the how the numbers kind of bear it out. Or, <laughs> or, or, or maybe, maybe it's stupid no matter what because Pat Mahomes <laughs> is on the other side. Because if you give him the ball first and he goes down and scores, which we're assuming would have happened regardless, um, then you are again under pressure yeah, to yeah, but, march but, down and score against Kansas City's great defense, which performed really, really well. Yeah, yeah. But the counter the counter argument to the counter argument is okay, the Chiefs go down and score uh, a touchdown. Then you're giving Brock Purdy, who needs a little bit more of an right. advantage, the advantage of having four downs to get a first down every time down the field. And then the fact that the 49ers didn't score a touchdown in the first drive, I mean, this was a great game. I agree with everything you said at the top, Joel, but we were deprived of what would have been the greatest play in the history of professional football, which is the Chiefs score and they go for a two-point conversion, which they've said that they would have done to either win or lose the Super Bowl. When I read that, Josh, I was stunned. That's amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, though, is that, like, I mean, we're all talking about people being tired. I mean, the Chiefs defense was clearly gassed, like, at the end, too. So, I mean, you got to think that you know, Andy Reid is looking at that. He's like, man, Christian McCaffrey's picking up a little steam now. They've been, you know, they're they're wearing us down. Like, we probably ought to get this out of here. We have Pat Mahomes and two yards. You know what I mean? Like, we can't, uh, uh, three yards. Like, we can't do something with that. Like, so that absolutely makes a lot of sense if they were going to end that way. Also, I kind of want to backtrack for a second because, you know, one thing that Shanahan did that did kind of annoy me? At the end of the first half, they get the ball back with 20 seconds to go. And they ran the clock out. And they also didn't use their timeouts when Kansas City had the ball earlier. They could have maybe had like a minute. Yeah, man. I mean, they had an opportunity to kind of put some more points on the board. And I just kept thinking all night. And maybe you all felt the same way. Man, 49ers should be leading by a lot more right now. Well, that's, like, that's the <laughs> thing. Like, um, <laughs> Michael Jordan never lost in the finals. Patrick Mahomes lost in the Super Bowl. They got blown out by the Bucks and mm-hmm. Tom Brady. And I think, look, small number of games a lot of like kind of chaos and, and randomness. It's hard to draw any conclusions. But if you are a player on the 49ers, you may be going to the game with like, the Chiefs have lost. Mahomes has lost in the Super Bowl. And I think the way to beat him and them, which the 49ers could have done in this game, they were dominant, is mm-hmm. get a fucking enormous lead. 
Don't get mm-hmm. a 10 point lead, get a 20 point lead. Mm-hmm. And they really like a 28 to three leads. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's touche. All right. In the bonus segment, we're going to talk about the CBS broadcast about Tony Romo and our thoughts therein. But before we end here, I wanted to do a couple of uh, lightning round things. And then you guys, if, if you have any last thoughts as well. All right. This is m- maybe a sad and unfair thing to even ask, but would you rather be Drake Greenlaw and tear your Achilles running onto the field during the fucking Super Bowl? Or would you rather be Daryl Luter and have the ball hit off your foot on a punt and lead to uh, the Chiefs scoring a crucial touchdown? I think I'd rather be Luter because I'm not looking at like nine months of rehab and a torn Achilles tendon. Yeah, I mean... Players get over fluke mistakes in games much quicker than fans do. People will forget that. Maybe a lot of 49ers fans want... You think that in 40 years, this guy's not going to wake up in the middle of the night being like, why did the ball hit my foot? He, hey, he he'll, he will have another chance to make up for it. You know, the thing about we, everybody's gotten kind of used to the idea that you can recover from an, uh, an injury like an Achilles or something. There's no guarantee, man. And also, like, I mean, this is like the worst time to have a season-ending injury. The, like the very end of the year, it's going to carry into next year. He may not be right next year. He yeah. may not play next year. So yeah. I, I'm probably going to be looter, I think, if I could. But still and sucks. also to have it happen that way. I mean, yeah. just random foot planting, non-contact, weird turf in your Horrible. cleat. Horrible. Awful. Horrible. All right. Final thoughts from you guys? I mean, look, man, I'm, I'm really curious if any of our listeners were in Vegas because I feel like we've kind of missed the very Vegasness of all this. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there was a time in our lives when Vegas was verboten. Like, nobody talked about it. You couldn't talk about gambling, and nobody wanted to do shit there. And then they had the NBA All-Star game there in 2007, and everybody was like, we're never doing that again. And then all of a sudden, like, there's teams there. They have the the America's biggest sporting event there. And it just seemed like a lot of fun from a distance. I kind of, like, I, I was telling my friends a couple times over the weekend, I was like, man, I kind of wish I had could have gone to something like that. It looked kind of fun. So um, if any of our listeners were there, any of you people to check it out, I would be kind of curious to know like, what you thought of the weekend because it, it looked kind of cool. And um, it just, because the game was so good, because there was all these other subplots, Taylor Swift and all that sort of stuff, Like, it, I feel like that kind of got lost. But we just had a Super Bowl in Vegas, which is weird if you've lived in America long enough to remember when you know people didn't really do this kind of uh, stuff there. <laughs> Um, have you been to Vegas? And A, have you been to a Super Bowl? It seemed like just the last place on earth I would have wanted to be this week, to be honest. Really? Oh. Yeah. But I mean, my final comment would be that the NFL, no matter what it does, always fucking wins. I mean, they get another amazing game. They're going to have the biggest audience maybe of all time that watched it. They have colonized the gambling industry and a market that the league uh, forwent for decades and they get an amazing game coming out of it until proven. Otherwise the NFL remains Teflon up next CNBC's Alex Sherman on the mega streaming service that may change how you watch sports. It is a confusing time to be a sports fan. USC will be playing Rutgers a lot next year. Call it 
rivalry week. The Big Ten and SEC just teamed up to, I think, take over college football once and for all. And last week, three media heavyweights, Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery, announced the creation of a joint streaming service that bundles 14 channels from ESPN to first-round NCAA men's basketball tournament stalwart True TV. To help us understand what the hell this means for the future of watching sports, we're joined now by Alex Sherman, who covers media for CNBC. Hey, Alex, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here. Let's start with the basics. What have these companies agreed to do? So this is, in essence, a skinny bundle of linear cable networks. And they are the cable networks and broadcast networks uh, owned by Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, and Fox. So that's ABC and Fox. Those are your two broadcast networks. And they come with the associated sports programming, but also all the other programming that you see on those broadcast networks. And then the cable networks that have some sports owned by all three of those companies. So Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2 and TNT and TBS and True TV, as you mentioned. And then, of course, the most important one is ESPN. And ESPN's inclusion in this bundle is sort of the reason that this is significant, because it's the first time that consumers will be able to pay a somewhat substantially discounted price and get access to ESPN, which has sort of been the last holdout. Uh, Every other company has gone streaming. ESPN's flagship has not. And so therefore, you've still had to pay for your $80, whatever it may be, cable bundle to get ESPN. Now they haven't priced this yet, but from what I'm told, it's expected to be about $40 to $50 a month. And you'll be able to at least watch all of the live games that are on ESPN. So, Alex, I guess that was kind of the confusion because I'm a person that I have regular cable because I don't want to think about all of this sort of stuff. So will I be able to watch all the sports that I want to watch if I get this skinny bundle or not? You will not because it does not include NBC and CBS. And there is a reason for that, which we can go into. But I would say you'll probably be able to watch, I don't know, 75% of the sports that are out there because ESPN owns the majority of live sports rights uh, on a comparative basis to their other legacy media partners. You also, by the way, won't be able to watch anything that's on Amazon or Apple or, you know, there's a little bit of other sports and some other streamers if you count, you know, WWE, that's now going to be on Netflix. So none of that comes with the bundle either. So this really is, in essence, a way to watch ESPN and not have to pay your full allotted cable bundle. And by the way, to make this more confusing, there is going to be an ESPN direct-to-consumer streaming service that's also going to launch, which is not the same thing as this. That will launch in the fall of 2025, Disney announced. This new streaming venture, the skinny bundle of cable, will launch in the fall of 2024 this year. So when I first saw the headlines for this, it was being heralded as like a really big story, like a a big business story, obviously, with all of these like enormous companies agreeing to do something. That's like an important story on your beat, Alex. But I think the more I've read about it and thought about it, kind of the less important it actually seems. It's clearly an interim step. It's not a final thing. As Joel was asking and you answered, it's not really a solution to most people. Um, It doesn't seem like to me. And if you're thinking, oh, I can get ESPN without paying for other stuff. ESPN is basically telling you, don't buy this, (laughs) in a kind of implying, because we're going to have our own thing. And so 
why are you wasting our time by coming on here to talk to us about this thing that isn't? No, uh, we asked you to come on. Thank you for coming on. But like, am I right and and th- thinking this story just keeps shrinking like every day? So I'll I'll give I'll defend my appearance here to some degree. <laughs> From a consumer standpoint, you are absolutely right, Josh. This is not really that big of a deal. There's only going to be so many people, I think, that. Do not subscribe to cable today that want this thing. Because if you don't subscribe to cable today, you're already living without ESPN. So now you're in this bucket of people that's like, oh, man, like, I really wish I had ESPN, but I don't want to buy YouTube TV or my cable product and pay $75 a month for it. But, man, like, if I could only pay $45 for it, I'd sure love to have it. But I also am in a bucket of people there that will take this thing and then not subscribe to the full ESPN direct-to-consumer service, which is out a year later, which comes with all sorts of bells and whistles and personalization and integration with fantasy sports and sports betting. And we don't even know what else is going to be on there, but it will have a lot of ESPN shoulder programming and documentaries and stuff that probably don't come with this service. So I also don't want to watch this Big Ten on CBS. I don't want to watch, you know, Premier League on NBC. Like, Right. You're threading the needle there. Unless you are okay with canceling cable, buying this service, and then also buying Peacock and Paramount Plus. So you're supplementing it. And like, yeah, you'd probably shave, I don't know, 10 or $15 maybe off your cable bill by doing that. But it becomes more confusing. You now have three interfaces instead of one. So yes, consumer standpoint, don't think that this is an earth-shattering product at all. And by the way, if you speak to Disney executives, they kind of say the same thing. Like, No, no, no. This is just like a niche product. Like we want as many people to get access to ESPN as possible. So if this is a million people or whatever it may be, like better than nothing, that's their general takeaway. The the reason, however, that this is a bigger story from a business standpoint is that it may lead to shrinking cable bundles overall. So it is possible that the pay TV distributors, the Comcast, the Charters, the DirecTVs will look at this product and say, hmm. I want that. Like, if you companies are going to sell this, give me that deal. Why am I paying you all this money for the HGTV and all these discovery networks that aren't really moving the needle for us, hypothetically, but we still have to pay you for because you've always bundled all of your channels together, Warner Brothers Discovery. So that may lead to a shrinking cable bundle and the dissolution of various different cable networks that still exist in sort of zombie form on your cable dial, uh, which will lead to, you know, theoretically a lot of lost jobs and maybe a little bit less money that you're paying for cable. And on the flip side, it's a way for these companies with very little risk, it seems to me, to begin to test and figure out what our streaming future looks like, right? Yes. I think that what's interesting about this to me is that the sports media community has been waiting for years for ESPN's direct-to-consumer flagship. If anyone listens to these sort of sports media podcasts, this has been like a topic of debate and question at least for three years. When is this thing going to finally come out? When can I finally get ESPN and cancel my cable bundle? Well, this announcement sort of mutes that hot debate point because it kind of takes the pressure off ESPN. It's like, well, you know, some people will sign up to this thing and other people will sign up to our direct-to-consumer thing. And so why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this because the cable model is a theoretically better business model than streaming. Why is that? 
It's really easy to cancel your streaming service, but it is a lot harder to cancel cable. You kind of have it, and then you just keep paying for it. But if you're out of season on sports, if you're a football fan, and you're paying for Monday Night Football ESPN, and then it's not football season anymore, you just click a button, and then you're not paying for ESPN anymore. So the churn rate is so much higher that it makes the cable model a better business, at least, again, in theory. So for people that are sports fans, right, is that you kind of come into sports by watching your team locally and then like you get into the other parts of the sports, right? Because I mean, there's this theory that like, oh, we want to see the SEC on ESPN or I want to see the, the national NBA game of the week. But the way I came to sports was like I was watching the Houston Rockets on Channel 20 or what I don't know the the, the the channel, but this doesn't appear to do anything for people that just want to see their local home teams, though, right? Sure doesn't. The regional sports networks are not a part of this. And the regional sports business model is also sort of on the margins breaking down. One of the largest holders of regional sports rights, which is a company called Diamond Sports, an entity majority owned by Sinclair, declared bankruptcy. So they've lost some sports on the margins. Amazon recently put in an investment that may make that company live on for some amount of time. But to your point, regional sports are not a part of this sports JV. So if you want to watch your local sports, again, you either need to keep subscribing for cable, at least for the time being. This JV was just announced, so it could grow. Or you need to subscribe to a streaming service. But just quickly, I think if you are thinking about this as like, well, maybe they'll add on regional sports. All that's going to do is increase the cost of this, and it's going to get to some point again where it starts to look more and more like the cost of cable because regional sports networks are really expensive because the rights to broadcast the games are really expensive. Maybe you guys can correct me if it seems like I'm just feeling some recency bias here, but it seems like both in our sports and in the way we watch sports, we're just all so conscious of the fact that we're in this purgatory right now, like whether it's the soccer super, super league or the SEC and Big Ten, like you were saying, Stefan, probably going to break away at some point. And in the way that these games are broadcast and how we watch them, like it's just so obvious that this streaming service isn't an ultimate solution, that it's just a trial balloon that's getting floated. And so I think the question that we're all wondering is whether it's in three years or five years or 10 years when stuff all shakes out with you know, the NBA is looking for its next TV deal. Like, it just seems like we're not living in the world currently that we're going to be living in. And there's a kind of frustration in that, like, we just want to get to the fireworks factory, as it were. So, Alex, I don't know if you want to put both your kind of fan hat on and your analyst hat on. Like, what do you want it to look like? Like, what do you think would be the best for fans and consumers? And what do you think is going to happen? Yep. So I'll give you two better ways than exist today from a simplicity standpoint. One is that we're headed toward a future where everything is streaming. So in the end, the the owners of these rights are the big pocketed tech companies because they want to get into this game. Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and then, you know, maybe Disney, ESPN sticks around. And I don't know, maybe one other traditional media company hangs around because 
NBC Universal and Paramount Global have merged or whatever it may be. So it's at least a little simpler. There's all these streaming services, maybe five or six of them. And then there's one aggregator of all of the streaming services. So you have something that kind of looks more like cable, but it's an aggregation of five or six streaming services. You pay one price, you go to one user interface, and it's all there. Or the other possibility is that sports stay on cable, live sports stay in this traditional pay TV ecosystem. And then everything else that's on demand is in streaming. So you still got to pay for two, but at least it's simple. Sports, cable. Not sports, not cable. We're not in that world today for reasons that I don't know if I have time to get into. But it basically stems from the fact that legacy media companies thought streaming was the future. Then in 2022, all the growth went out of Netflix and all the legacy media companies pivoted their strategies to emphasize profitability over streaming growth. Streaming still is a money-losing business for these legacy media companies, but the ship was already out of the dock at that point and the sports had been put on these streaming services. So if you're going to take them away, that's terrible publicity and and very for, for all the people that are already paying for these things. So we're kind of in a mess now that we can't get out of. And that's why we're living in this purgatory. And yet the leagues themselves, Alex, have to perform the same dance. We don't know what the NBA is going to do. The NFL is negotiating to put more games that are exclusively streamed. They did that this year and it seemed to work. Okay. They've been doing it for a couple seasons. Now Um, there's going to be a game in Brazil next year that could be just streamed only the leagues play an important role here. And we really haven't talked about what that role is in shaping the future of how their products are consumed going forward the leagues but also all of the ancillary sports associations whether it's tennis or golf or or the olympics or the world cup all of these ancillary um separate organizations that create sports products yeah it's a super important point the leagues themselves are actually sort of incentivized to keep us in this purgatory because they want as many bidders as possible for all of this stuff so Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, just said last week the Super Bowl will not stream exclusively on streaming for as long as he is the commissioner. Why? Because the reach is still the broadest if you're doing something on broadcast TV because you can get it over the air for free. Rural, there's a lot of rural areas of this country that still don't have high-speed broadband. They can get the game. And then if you want to stream it on a non-exclusive basis, that's also available. So if you keep the legacy media guys in the game and you incentivize them because cable is a better business model, but then you have all these deep pocketed tech companies that have balance sheets that are 10 to 15 times bigger than all the legacy media companies who can just throw a billion dollars at whatever right they want to. That is the best situation for the league to maximize the amount of money coming in. And you just carve up the rights for all of these sports, three packages, four packages, five packages, whatever it may be. And so it makes the consumer in a very confusing bind, but it does maximize revenue for the leagues. Alex Sherman covers media for CNBC and CNBC.com. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now it is time for Afterball, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Did you guys like the Bennett's Prune Juice 
ad during the Super Bowl? Wait, was there one? Did it? Maybe it was a local ad here in D.C., Joel. You didn't <laughs> <Yeah>. see it. <laughs> no, I, I saw that, Josh. I thought about Kenny Sailors, excellent pitch man. I can see why Bennett's Prune Juice has signed him up. He's got charisma. Tony Romo, watch out. I liked the part of the ad where he said it was okay. That was my favorite. But Joel, we're going to take this opportunity to get the Joel Anderson review of the Super Bowl halftime show. It's what people have been waiting for. Yeah, well, you know, I try not to make things about me if I can do it. But sometimes <laughs> it's really hard because, uh, you know, man, I've, you know, Usher and I are the same age. And I feel like I've kind of grown up with him. So it was really exciting to see him on stage. Did Usher ever, like, have as good a chance with Beyonce as you did? Well, I know they've done some songs together and he was in her, uh, I can't remember, he's in one of those videos. She- you have a lot of things in common except that you had more of a chance with Beyonce, so I'm just trying we've to... Had, we, we've, we've both been in the air, you know, she seemed to have an interest in both of us, there's enough. She's had a, a previous partners, so I'm sure that, you know, maybe, you know, she could, like, she could like me and Usher, you know what I'm saying? But I think the thing is, is that it was just really, really cool to see him on stage last night. And I just remember when he came out with Can You Get With It, and I know that people that have not... Usher fans don't remember Can You Get With It when he first came out with Puff Daddy and Devontae Swing, and then he did the Think of You uh, song that was his second single. And I was like, man, like, you know, this kid is really good. I remember being intensely jealous of Usher as a teenager. I was like, man, that dude's so cool. He probably gets all the girls. And it's probably true. But as I got older, I learned, I was like, well, you know what? I can just take pleasure in seeing this guy uh, on stage in America's biggest spectacle. And I thought he did a really good job. That's big of you. What I'm hearing, Stefan, is that Joel did the Super Bowl halftime show, in a way, in a sense. <laughs> in a With way. Beyonce. I feel like we did, he did it for all of us. He did it for all of us. And I mean, the thing is, is, so like we were talking about it with our producer, Kevin, before here, and he was not quite as impressed with the stagecraft and something like that. And I mean, look, wow, I, don't, Kevin. I don't know about wow. that. But I just, the thing is, like, how can you, here's the, the, the one thing that like we've seen a lot of Super Bowl halftime acts that have done really, really well. You know, Prince, Michael Jackson, Rihanna, whatever. Have you ever seen anybody roller skate? Like have a, a costume change in roller skate in the middle of a of a performance? I mean, what a tremendous risk he took there. Mm-hmm. I was I was very worried for Unless him. he's it, a lifelong roller skater. And he is. Roller skating is a big part of Atlanta culture, which is, you know, where he makes his home base. And so, I mean, it's, look, a big deal for him. But also, like, anything could go wrong in that circumstance. You're, you're on stage with all these other people. I think there was this very end, like, maybe he had a quick stumble. But the fact that he pulled that off and was willing to do it for everybody, I thought it was really, really good. And so, look, he brought out her. He brought out uh, Alicia Keys, which, you know, I was a little less excited about. Who's more famous, Usher or Alicia Keys? Oh, Usher, right? Gotta be, right? You oh well, okay. Stefan is shaking his head. I don't you think, think so. I'm thinking. You crossover? think Alicia Keys? Really? Yeah. You didn't. You weren't a big OMG fan. You weren't in the club then, Stefan, when <laughs> OMG came out. <laughs> I felt pretty white watching the halftime. I think show this might be day. a two Americas <laughs> issue around Usher's fame. Could be. I think. Yeah. That's, I think that's right. So I would say I named those early those couple early songs, and that's why I was like, oh man. Well, maybe I'm just maybe maybe me and what Kevin and I would do after this is we'll send you a little you know Usher mixtape or something, <laughs> a little playlist, and you can just kind of get caught up in retrospect. So but yeah, good, so good Kenny job, Sailors Usher. would want me to ask you what our afterball name is for this week, Joel. Well, you know, I was kind of struggling with this uh, for a little bit. And so I'm just going to go ahead and make it his ex-girlfriend, who herself was a star of the girl group TLC, Chili. You know, the, the Confessions album has her imprint all over it, right? And so I think it's fair to make it Chili. Isn't she like, with Matthew Lawrence now? 
She is. And she sent out a tweet. Uh, I think Matthew Lawrence's birthday was yesterday. So anyway, but I mean, I still think of them as like kind of bound together because that was when Usher was at his most popular. So I think Chili has to be the afterball name today. All right, Stefan, what is your Chili? I'm going to date myself now and tell you that the first Super Bowl that I distinctly remember took place on January 11th in 1970. That was Super Bowl IV, the second one to officially carry the name. It was played at Tulane Stadium in New Orleans. The participating teams were the Chiefs and the Minnesota Vikings. And speaking of halftime shows, that one was titled A Tribute to Mardi Gras, and it featured jazz musicians Doc Severinsen, Al Hurt, and Lionel Hampton, an opera singer named Marguerite Piazza, comedian and singer Carol Channing, and the Southern University Marching Band reenacting the 1815 Battle of New Orleans. Of course. Just like this past season, Kansas City had won two road playoff games to reach the Super Bowl, where NFL Films mic'd up a head coach for the first time, and Hank Stram of the Chiefs, clutching a rolled-up program, did not disappoint. Minnesota had the best record in the NFL under its stoic coach, Bud Grant. The Vikings were already my second favorite team after the Giants because of their purple uniforms and the sweeping Viking Horns helmet logo. The team name and imagery was adopted to honor Minnesota's Scandinavian roots and also because my favorite player, Giants quarterback Fran Tarkenton, had played for the Vikings previously. The Chiefs won the game, which bummed out six-year-old me. How could the purple people eaters and quarterback Joe Cap? whom SI would put on the cover next summer under the headline, The Toughest Chicano, lose to an AFL team. It was the second straight year that it happened after the Jets' famous upset victory of the Colts. What six-year-old me didn't realize was that a big reason for the Chiefs' success was that it actively scouted and signed black players, particularly players from HBCUs. I was reminded of this history during Sunday's game in a Twitter thread by the writer Michael Harriet. Harriet traced the importance of black players to the NFL's founding in 1920 and before, and he explained the unofficial quota system that restricted the number of black players in the league through the 1950s. When the AFL was started in 1960 by a group including Lamar Hunt, who owned the Dallas Texans, who would move to Kansas City a couple of years later, it was at an obvious competitive disadvantage to the monolithic NFL. The inefficiency that the AFL quickly exploited was the NFL's baked-in racism, the unofficial quotas limiting the number of black players on a team. Kansas City was, like the NFL, unofficially segregated, and as Mark Dent and Rustin Dodd write in their new book about the Chiefs, and the city kingdom quarterback, Lamar Hunt was never confused for a progressive, but he was a strident capitalist, they write, who wanted to beat the hidebound NFL. One of Hunt's first hires was a Houston guy that I'm sure you're familiar with, Joel, the first full-time black scout in pro football history, Lloyd Wells. Wells' nickname was Judge because he was such a gifted talent evaluator. Since the Southern College Conferences were all white in the early 60s, Wells funneled local athletes to HBCUs. In 1963, the Chiefs had the first pick in the AFL draft, and Wells persuaded Hunt to take Grambling defensive end Buck Buchanan. He was the first black player drafted number one in either league. In 1964, Wells managed to sneak out and later sign Prairie View A&M wide receiver Otis Taylor from the hotel where the Dallas Cowboys Cowboys had stashed him before the AFL draft. 
Kansas City drafted and signed more great black players, linebackers Bobby Bell of Minnesota and Willie Lanier of Morgan State, running back Mike Garrett of USC, Curtis McClinton of Kansas, cornerback Emmett Thomas of Bishop College in Dallas, and a bunch more pivotal, if less remembered, players from Grambling, Tennessee State, and Southern University. As Denton Dodd Wright, the black players had a big impact off the field, too. McClinton, who scored in Kansas City's 35-10 loss to Green Bay in the first AFL-NFL title game in 1967, worked for a black-owned bank in Kansas City and formed a company to develop integrated housing and pressured the city for a fair housing law, which passed that same year. The Vikings were big favorites in Super Bowl IV, but the Chiefs jumped out to a 9-0 lead and padded it with a back-of-the-playbook play that Hank Stram sent into the huddle 65-toss power trap with wide receiver Gloucester Richardson, another Wells product, who went to Jackson State. Garrett scored on the play, Lanier and Thomas intercepted passes, Otis Taylor caught a clinching touchdown, and the Chiefs won 23-7. In the locker room afterward, during a live interview with CBS, Garrett pulled Wells into the shot to give him credit. You still had redlining and all that, Garrett told Denton Dodd in Kingdom Quarterback, but you could for a period of time forget. That Chiefs team was the first in pro football to start more African-American players than white players in a championship game, 12 out of 22. 54 years later, the franchise won its fourth Super Bowl on a touchdown pass from a black quarterback to a black wide receiver. Wow, man, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are a lot of older black men in my life who were Kansas City Chiefs fans. The, the, the Chiefs and the Cowboys were like two teams that uh, the older black men in my life were always like, you know, rooting for and talking about it once upon a time. And it was definitely because of the stuff you outlined there, right? They gave them opportunities when a lot of teams, unlike the former Washington NFL team, for instance, didn't. So yeah, man, they they earned the loyalty of a lot of, of a generation of black folks in some ways. And I guess it's kind of, you know, washed over me because for whatever reason, I've always just kind of been a you know, uh, Chiefs, Steelers, you know, those are the teams that I just kind of always just kind of followed a little bit. So, yeah, man, that's great. I love that. And I think of baseball, the Boston Red Sox have this long drought between uh, winning World Series championships. One of the most famous streaks or curses in sports. And lo and behold, they were, you know, very, very, very slow to sign black players. What a coincidence that they didn't win. And the uh, the mm. Dodgers, who are the team that you can say progressive, but they took advantage of other teams' racism as an ar arbitrage opportunity that, like, there are all these great players that nobody else wants. We'll get them and just win the World Series. <laughs> and the Chiefs doing it, Joel, I think is interesting because Kansas City was not some northern city, right? It's southern in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And for Lamar Hunt, who, again, was not some progressive trailblazer. He wasn't Branch Rickey here, but the recognition that the only way we're going to compete with the NFL is if we get the best players and we have an opportunity to do that. And they went out and did that. If only they could now, you know, get rid of their logo and their imagery and their name and that chant. Yeah, it's kind of weird to know. It's kind of weird how it's kind of like, I don't know if it's faded from the headlines, but I feel like that's just not a topic of discussion. It's like when Washington, you know, changed, it's like, all right, we fi we figured that out. And uh, like that the Atlanta Braves off the hook, for instance, or whatever, right? Didn't you all see the videos of people doing the Tomahawk Chop Chiefs fans? Yeah, man. In so Germany. It's just, that's still kind of ugly. In Germany. 
That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Thank you.